Heavenly Father, it was out of your infinite grace and eternal love for sinners like us that you would send someone into our lives to share the gospel with us. For those of us here this morning that know your Son as Lord and Savior, you sent someone to preach, to teach us that Christ is Lord. It was by your Spirit that we repented and believed and are now being sanctified into the very image of your Son. Father, I ask that Sidney's prayer this morning would cause each of us to reflect deeply upon the mission field and the harvest that is before us. That we would not take lightly the family and friends and co-workers and neighbors who do not know your Son that we would not shy away from the great responsibility that we have, as Kirk read from Ezekiel 33, of being faithful watchmen, of testifying to a crucified Christ, of offering the hope of the gospel to those who are currently perishing. I ask, Lord, that in light of our prayer this morning, as we think about the 157,000 souls that will enter into eternity this day without Christ, that our hearts would break and that we could no longer be silent. Father, I fear there is a great darkness upon us that our hearts are far colder than we'd like to admit that we are so wrapped up with the things of this world, our professions, our educations, our, our material possessions, that we've lost focus of why we are still here. Certainly coming into your presence even this morning would be better than anything on this side, and yet you've kept us here that we might be faithful messengers to your Son. Father, I I too ask that you would forgive us for our negligence. Forgive us for our silence. Forgive us for not testifying to the true message, but making it soft and easy. Let our forgiveness be heard by you, Father, and then in that, I pray that you would change us. Use these final verses in this great book to encourage us to hear the call and to open our mouths and to proclaim and teach what we know to be true. Father, I ask that you would bless us this morning with your Spirit, and that by your Spirit you would do a mighty work in our hearts. Do not leave us unchanged. Do not leave us cold. Make us new now, that we might see many others made new. By your grace and mercy, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We spent the uh, morning prayer furnace praying for the lost, praying for missionaries, praying for work to be done. I cannot pray for the lost alone or collectively without becoming very emotional. So it sets me into the sermon like this. The title of the sermon is simple, it's the message. It is the message that has been given to us to take to others. In these two verses, I'm not going to astound you with profound, deep theology. I'm not going to take you into the depths of the Trinity or the beautiful hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. I want this to be a very simple message that we hear today And individually, and even more importantly, collectively as a church say, we will teach and preach Christ to everyone who will listen. There was a movie in 2010 entitled Inception. 
And the movie ends in a most unconventional way, if you've seen it. Dream infiltrator Dom Cobb, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, he had spent many years of his life living in two realities, the real world and the dream world. And by the end of the movie, he had done that so much, it's unclear to him whether or not he was actually awake or if he was dreaming when the movie comes to an end. The movie ends with Dom supposedly standing in his home, almost in a state of shock, and he takes something called his wife's totem, and that was a a little top that she would spin in the midst of a dream to determine whether or not she was dreaming or in reality. And you see, when she was dreaming, the top never stopped spinning. It continued to spin, spin indefinitely. So he wants to know if he's actually home or if it's another lifelike dream. And so he takes the top and he spins it on the counter. And then Dom gets a glimpse of his two children who he was trying to get home to in the backyard. And they're calling out to him, Daddy, Daddy. So he leaves the top spinning and he runs in the backyard and he embraces his children. And the camera moves from the backyard back to the counter and this top that's spinning. And it's spinning perfectly. And your first thought is, he's still dreaming. He never made it home. Those aren't his kids. And then the top starts to wobble a little bit. It teeters once, back up, and then the screen goes black and the movie ends. And if you watch the movie, like most who saw it, you were very frustrated. And you wanted to know, did he make it home? Did he make it to his kids? Or is the whole thing still just a dream? It was a very unconventional and I think very creative way to end the movie. Some have expressed the same frustration with Luke's conclusion in the book of Acts. Many have. As a story people, we like a beginning, a middle, and an end. We don't like loose ends. We want all the pieces to be in place. So we get to the end of the book of Acts and we want to know what? What happened to Paul? What happened to Paul? I mean, after all, he had been arrested. He had petitioned to go before Caesar. He's in Rome awaiting to come before Caesar. And so we rightly ask, did he stand before Caesar or not? And if he did, was he found guilty and executed as an insurrectionist? Or was he released before he ever saw Caesar? And if he was released, then what happened to him after that? Did he go back to the churches and continue ministering? Did he ever make it to Spain? That's why he went to Rome in the first place, to get to Spain. I would argue, my beloved, these are all very reasonable questions. We spent 13 chapters with the Apostle Paul. We we were with Paul on his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. We've walked with him now through three missionary journeys. We saw him go from Ephesus to Jerusalem. We saw all the pain in Jerusalem. We saw him two years in Caesarea, making all the way to Rome. And so we want to know what happened to Paul. I do not believe that's an unreasonable question to ask. So many questions left unanswered. So why would Luke... Why would he do this to us? Why would he leave us in suspense? I do not believe that Luke was being cruel, and I do not believe that he failed in his ability to complete the story. I believe, in fact, he was directing our attention elsewhere, someplace much more important than what happened to the physical well-being of the Apostle Paul. In Inception, DiCaprio plays the main character of the movie, a fugitive from the law who was trying the entire time to get back to his home and get back to his children. He simply wanted to get home and be with his family. But in the book of Acts, Paul is not the main character. He's not the main character, he's not the minor character, and he's not the hero of the book of Acts. He is simply what? He is simply a messenger. He's a messenger. It was the message of the book of Acts that Luke wanted to resonate on our hearts and minds when we close the 28th chapter. The message of how God, through the work of the real main character and the real hero, Jesus Christ, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, how in that message, God is able to bring sinners like us where? Home, freely, out of the dream, and out of the nightmare, which is sin and death, and into the reality of his kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was the message that Paul wanted to, us to hear. It was the message that Luke wanted to leave us with. And this morning, I, I would like to show you from these last two verses why I believe 
Luke wanted us to end here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It was not a failed ending. I would like us to see why we end with the message and a faithful messenger. And I want to encourage you to embrace then the life of a messenger too. I would like to encourage you to embrace that and then be motivated the same way Paul was. Because you have to ask what compelled Paul to his dying day to faithfully proclaim and teach crucified Christ. So let's do that this morning. Let's let's look at Luke's unconventional ending and not be mad at him for not telling us about what happened to Paul. Let's look and see two things. One, the messenger's life, which I pray will be our lives, and two, the messenger's motivation. What kept Paul going that can keep us going today? The theme of the sermon is simple. As the messenger decreases, the message increases. As you die to yourself and pursue Jesus Christ, as you decrease, the message of Jesus Christ will increase. And that's what we want. That's what we want until we see Jesus face to face. All right. Are you with me? Yeah? Do I have your attention? Okay, number one, the messenger's life. Look at verse 30. He, speaking of Paul, lived there, speaking of Rome, two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. Verse 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So when Paul arrived in Rome, if you remember from last week, he called all the prominent Jews to come to him and so that he could proclaim the gospel. Look up at verse 23. And we were, we were told last week that from morning till evening he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And so in seeing this response, Paul draws upon Isaiah and he quotes from uh, the book of Isaiah and he tells them, you have dull hearts, you have deaf ears, you have closed eyes to what? To the message, to the gospel. And then he said this, verse 28, look with me. He said, therefore, let it be known to you, speaking to the Jews, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And then as Kirk talked about last week, this triumphant proclamation, they will what? They will listen. They will listen to the message that God sent through his messengers. And then Luke tells us for the next two years, Paul remains in Rome under house arrest, chained to a guard doing what? faithfully discharging his duties as a messenger. Paul did not relinquish from what he'd been called to do even though he was in chains. Look at verse 30 again. He lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense. So still under house arrest, still chained to a guard. He wasn't required to go to the barracks and that was by God's providence that he could bring lots of people around Paul for Paul to not only share the gospel and and teach of Christ but to raise up in the faith. He was able to stay in his own, either in, a, in an apartment or, or a home. Um, it said that he paid his own expense. Prisoners were not allowed to work, so Paul wasn't busily doing tent making in his kitchen. Uh, he likely was being supported by the church in Rome and other churches that he had already planted or sponsored, and likely by Aristarchus and Luke and some of the others that were with him who were working to, to pay his expenses. So he's there, he, he's under arrest still, but he does not relinquish his responsibility as a messenger. And he's, he does two things that we should be called to as well. Number one, Paul was welcoming, and number two, Paul was revealing. Not revealing himself per se, but the revelation of who God is and who Christ is. So for two years straight, Paul welcomed, it says, Luke tells us, welcomed all who came to him. Now that word welcome it, it, a better, I think a broader translation would be to, to receive heartily or to receive joyfully. The emphasis is not so much on hospitality. We think welcoming, we think hospitality. I'm, I'm sure that Paul was very hospitable in his home with all who came to him. But the emphasis is on the receiving of others, the bringing in of others. In other words, while Paul was under house arrest, It did not hamper his desire or ability to faithfully fulfill and complete his continued mission as a messenger. My beloved, as messengers of the gospel, I would argue that we are to be a welcoming people. A welcoming people. And you say, well, that that sounds so obvious. It is obvious, but I don't know how welcoming we truly are. God decreed for the gospel of grace to be proclaimed and explained verbally from one person to another. 
It's supposed to go from person to person, this proclamation of the kingdom and teaching of Christ. And so if we as Christians are not welcoming, if we do not receive people into our lives, into our homes, if we do not receive those who do not know Christ, not only is it contrary to the message itself because the message of the gospel is what? That God through Christ receives us back into the kingdom. That he receives those who are unworthy into his presence and into his joy. So if we are not a welcoming people, receiving people, not only are we living contrary to the gospel message, but I would say it's counterproductive to the message itself because people are supposed to see and hear our love for God. You can't be seen as a disciple of Christ. They can't experience your love and your generosity and your kindness if they're not welcomed into your life. Christ accomplished this on our behalf. And therefore, I believe that Christians should be the most welcoming people on the planet. We know what it's like to be on the outside looking in, don't we? You remember what it was like before you knew Christ. You were outside of the kingdom. You were outside of the light. You remained in the darkness. And then God called you. He welcomed you through Christ by the Spirit. And now you're on the inside. And you can see how dark it still is. We of all people knowing that we are in the kingdom not because we are worthy but because Christ is worthy. We're inside the kingdom because of the work that Christ accomplished for us on the cross. And now having experienced all this all-encompassing, welcoming love of God, ought we not have the same love for the lost in our lives? Should we not? Now that we've experienced it ourselves, you're on the inside if you know Christ. Should we not be, as a welcoming people, kind instead of judgmental? Should we not be approachable instead of standoffish? Should our presence with the unsaved not be like that of Christ himself? If you remember during the ministry of our Lord, he was criticized by the Pharisees for what? For dining with tax collectors and prostitutes. Should we not be in their presence, knowing them, learning about them, telling them? And should it not be with all people? Not just as those are most like us, or those that we like. Verse 30, Paul welcomed all who came to him. Jew or Gentile, rich, poor, educated, ill-educated, religious, irreligious, they came and were told they all came, and when they came, Paul received them joyfully. He didn't say you and not you. He wasn't selective in the proclamation of the gospel. Why? Because if all people are made in the image of God and all people are sinners, then all people need a Savior. Paul understood that. Every single person that came through that door to see the Apostle Paul heard the gospel. It was proclaimed and taught because Paul knew they needed Jesus. So does everybody in your mission field who doesn't know Christ as Lord. Every single one needs Christ in order to be saved. He understood that, so he preached that they might repent and believe. I believe we are to receive all that we can as well. We're to live our lives, my beloved, in such a way as Christians that, that the grace being exercised through us by the Spirit will be attractive. People should be drawn to you as a Christian. And you should welcome them. So gospel messengers are to be welcoming messengers and we're also to be revealing messengers. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 30 again. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, verse 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So not only, if we're going to be faithful messengers of Christ, not only do we want to welcome the lost into our lives, we want to, when we have them in our presence, we want to proclaim the kingdom and teach them, about, teach them about Jesus Christ. We want them to know Christ. As a messenger, you know truth. You know God's clear revelation if you know Jesus Christ. 
He wouldn't be a very good messenger if you didn't. What message would you share if you couldn't tell them about the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and the hope of salvation by grace through faith in Him? But you do know if you know Christ. You see, when God saved you and sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in you, no longer are you subject to that man or woman that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Remember, he said, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. He cannot understand them, for they're spiritually discerned. But you have the Holy Spirit. And that means the, the things of God, the Word of God, you can discern rightly. You know it. You know Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. You understand the Word of God. And you know the Gospel. And therefore, you are fit. You are wonderfully fit to proclaim the good news of this kingdom that has in fact come. You have that discernment, my beloved. Last week, Kirk talked about how Paul testified to the kingdom of God and tried to convince them, the Jews, about Jesus. Luke ends, it's a recapitulation in verse 31. He changes the words a little bit. Instead of testify, he says proclaim. And instead of try to convince, he says teaches. Look at verse 31. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, as a faithful messenger, Paul continued to do what he'd been doing his entire ministry right up to this very end. Now, we talked last week, the word to proclaim is a heralder. We don't use that term much, heralder, heralder, to herald, but to proclaim to declare, to make a a categorical statement of truth. That's good. Stating something factually. That's good. We are, as messengers of Christ, to make clear, listen, understandable statements about the kingdom of God. Clear statements you know to be true because the word of God says it and the Holy Spirit has revealed it to you. Now last week, Kirk taught us that the kingdom of God is God's reign over his people. One commentator put it like this. He said, in Christ, God's kingdom is realized as he comes to rule in the hearts of his people. Now that's very helpful. Did you hear that? God's kingdom is realized, it's manifest, as he comes to rule in the hearts of his people. In other words, God's kingdom on earth is manifest when what? When sinners are saved. When sinners come to a saving grace, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they're given a new heart. And with their new heart, they want to follow Christ. They want to obey God. They want to live as kingdom citizens of God's eternal kingdom. In other words, through the proclamation of the gospel and the salvation of souls, God's kingdom grows. It grows here on earth. Paul would have proclaimed that this kingdom of God had come through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul would have proclaimed that this kingdom is now present, present and active, offering salvation by grace through faith to anyone who repents and believes. And this present kingdom offers eternal life, life with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for how long? Forever and ever. For all those who put their faith in Jesus and walk in righteousness. That's what the kingdom offers. He would have declared that this kingdom is powerful, able to take the most rebellious, sinful, self-glorifying sinner like you, like me, and make them new, no longer bound by sin and death. He would have certainly talked about this kingdom culminating in the return of who? The king. The return of the king, Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead and bring this eternal kingdom to earth where he and it will dwell forever as he makes all things new. These truths about the kingdom and so much more, Paul would have proclaimed, he would have declared boldly without reservation because they are true. My beloved, the life of a gospel messenger is a life of proclamation. It is a life of declaration. It is a life of professing what you know to be true, clear, bold, loving, explicit truths that you know because God's made them known to you. As gospel messengers, we are to proclaim the truth of the kingdom. We are to make known to the lost in our mission field that this kingdom is real, this kingdom is present, this kingdom is powerful, and this king is coming. 
and that this kingdom is without compromise, which means all who reject the reality of this kingdom and its king will one day come before the king and be judged. These categorical truths you know because Christ has made them known to you. But to have them be made known to you bears a responsibility. You haven't been, the kingdom hasn't been revealed for you to remain silent. As a messenger, you are to take these truth claims and proclaim them even in the midst of a culture that hates absolute truth claims. Now, my beloved, listen, I'm, I'm not saying this is easy, especially today. We hate the idea of there being absolutes of any kind. And, and what I'm calling you to is what Paul did, is that's to proclaim things you know to be absolutely true. I tell you that because if you are a messenger of Jesus Christ, you don't have a right, I say this in love, we don't have a right to change the message, to make it easier on the ear. Right? We soften it by saying, well, it might be true, it's partially true, it's a little bit true. Or we change the gospel altogether. We say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Or believe in Jesus and you'll be rich, healthy, happy, and whole. Not the gospel. But that's, that's comfortable to the ear today. You're a messenger. A messenger has no right to change the message. Nor, listen, does a messenger have any right to remain silent. Messengers are given a message to communicate As a messenger of Jesus Christ, you've been given a message to communicate, which means you are to open your mouth, proclaim it, and declare it boldly your whole life until you come into the presence of Jesus and you won't need to proclaim it anymore. Prior to modern modes of communication, this might surprise you, people were the primary messengers. Right? Way before things like texting and email and Instagram, if you wanted to communicate a message to somebody, it was through a messenger. They were actually hired messengers, people. That was their job. What do you do? I'm a messenger. What does that mean? I take a message from point A, and I take it to point B. Pretty simple. And yet oftentimes, the task of this high office was so important that getting a message from person A to person B was the difference between life and death in one or more parties. For those of you who saw the movie 1917, it tells the true story about two British soldiers Lance Corporal Schofield and Lance Corporal Blake. And this is 1917, toward the end of World War I, and they were given a seemingly impossible assignment. They were told to take a message to 16,000 troops nine miles behind enemy lines that there was going to be an attack. And if they continued their offensive, they were going to be slaughtered. And so Lance Corporal Schofield and Lance Corporal Blake traveled nine miles behind enemy lines in less than 24 hours because the attack was the following day, in order to warn 1,600 of their fellow troops and Corporal Blake's own brother, Joseph. He had motivation to get there. Had they not gotten the message there in time, they would have been slaughtered. Had they deviated from the message, taken time behind enemy lines, just hung out a little bit, they wouldn't have gotten the message there. My beloved, we have been given the message of all messages, have we not? In Christ, we have been given the message that the kingdom of God has come and salvation can be found in its king. It is a message that has power to save body and soul, your brothers, your sisters, your friends, your family work, your co-workers, all who do not know Christ, that message calls them to turn to Christ and be saved. So like Paul, we are to reveal by proclaiming but as we saw last week we're to reveal also by teaching the life of a gospel messenger will be proclamation and explanation and oftentimes those will go together right many of the times you'll proclaim something today no one will have any idea what you're talking about and you'll need to teach what you just proclaimed jesus christ is lord what does that mean you'll teach it the kingdom of god has come what does that mean you'll teach to it And that means reasoning well from the Word of God. Knowing Scripture well enough to teach the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul knew Christ well. And he was teaching to all those that came to him about his Lord. 
he likely told them that he was the Lord over the heavens and the earth. That he was, in fact, the maker of all that is seen and unseen, the creator of every man, woman, and child, and worthy of our total and complete obedience, worthy of glory, worthy of honor, and worthy of worship. He would have certainly taught about his miraculous birth by the Virgin Mary and his sinless life and his supernatural power to heal the sick and raise the dead. That would have been in his curriculum, I'm sure. He would have taught about the teachings of Christ and how above all else we are to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves, caring for them and serving them. He would have taught them of our Lord's perfect life, of his suffering, of his death and his resurrection from the dead. And he would have explained how by grace through faith in this crucified, risen Savior, salvation comes to sinners like us. That we can know Jesus as Savior and not judge. We can know Christ as our substitute, not our accuser. As faithful witnesses, my beloved, we will teach to the hope of the resurrection and the life of the world to come. We will teach to the love of God the Father has shown through the death of His Son. As a messenger of God, you are a teacher. You're a teacher. Someone who is called to be a lifelong learner of who God is, the kingdom, and the Son so that you can tell that to others because most people do not know. Certainly in this place in which we live, Most people do not even know what the simple gospel is. Moses, at the end of Deuteronomy, he wrote this, Deuteronomy 29, 29. He said, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of His law. My beloved, we are to teach that people might do. We are to teach so that others can live as citizens of the kingdom too that they might enter through faith and then live as sons and daughters. Kingdom transfership is hard. If you, like me, came to a saving grace later in life, you had 20-plus years of baggage you had to work through. It took me five years to try to figure out some of the basic things. Switching kingdoms is hard. Switching countries is hard. And it takes teaching. It takes our help. We had a dear sister years ago that came to us from a very small town in China, and she moved to the United States. First time she had been out of her small town, let alone to a new country. And she came here by God's grace, and we brought her in, and several members took it upon themselves not to proclaim how to live in the United States, but to teach her how to live in the United States. Simple things like where to grocery shop, and and, and where not to grocery shop. And, and, and people that you could trust and people you should stay away from, where she could live, appropriate speech, life in the church. It was more than just proclaiming these truths. It was teaching her. It was coming alongside her. And the church did. And she was here for two years and was extremely blessed by it. She assimilated well into this culture. For better or for worse, she did. So much teaching, my beloved, is required to assimilate the unsaved into the kingdom of God. So much teaching. When you come to a saving grace, you are saved and you're brought in. But you know very little. And and much of what you know, it probably ain't so. And so you have to spend time learning from those who know more coming alongside older brothers and sisters in Christ who will teach you and assimilate you into the kingdom of God. And how much here, my beloved, we do not know generational Christianity in the Bay Area. You know that, right? In fact, all of Northern California, the basin's a little different. They had some great revivals back in the 1920s. We never saw that. There's never been sustained generational Christianity in the Bay Area. A lot of schools offer what's called first-gen programs, A first gen is someone, first time they're going to a four-year school and they bring them in, they give them a week of orientation, they tell them how not to flunk out and how to make it through, right? Well, most of the people that we know coming into the church today in this area, they're first generation. Many of you are first generation or you know people who are first generation. Well, as first generation Christians, we need each other. We need to teach each other the ways of the faith. 
It requires our time and our investment. So we finish this book of Acts. We want to know what happened to Paul physically, and Luke tells us what happened to Paul spiritually. Did you notice that? Paul had been commissioned by Jesus as an apostle to the Gentiles, as a faithful messenger. And Paul had been so radically transformed by the Holy Spirit and his love for Christ that he remained a faithful messenger even here to the end. He did that by welcoming the lost into his presence and by revealing the kingdom of God through proclamation and teaching, explaining to all who came to him why and what he believed in Jesus Christ. It was a fitting way, I believe, to draw the book to a close. Not telling us what happened to Paul, but setting before us what? The model of a faithful messenger. Right? Luke wants us to see that. He wants us to see the model of a faithful messenger. One who after years of suffering for the sake of the gospel, as Christ promised, here, still in chains, what's he doing? He's welcoming the lost, he's proclaiming the kingdom, and he's teaching about Christ. He's still holding to the end. I don't know about you, but if you're a little bit older, that's encouraging. That's very encouraging because we can get tired at times. The problem with the ending of this book, I believe for many, is not its clarity. We, we know we're supposed to be messengers. We know that God has called and equipped us to proclaim the kingdom and teach about Jesus Christ. The problem for most of us, if we're really honest, is not how we're supposed to live, but what? The desire to live that life. We know how we're supposed to. I don't imagine anyone in the last 30 minutes that I'm shocked that I'm supposed to proclaim the gospel. I am astounded you're telling me I'm supposed to teach others about Jesus Christ. Of course you know this. Many of you have known it for years. The problem is we don't have the motivation and the desire to live as faithful messengers of Christ. So I want to close in this last point, and I hope that you find yourself motivated by it. I don't want you leaving this morning continuing to live as an unfaithful messenger. I want you to be motivated as Paul was motivated. Point number two, the messenger's motivation. Over the past several months, we've walked with Paul through extreme suffering, have we not? And we've seen this man literally give his life in the movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even here in his final years, he's, he's under house arrest. He's not in the barracks. You say, well, that's good. But he's chained. Many think, and, and I think I agree, that he's chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day for two years. My beloved, listen. You say, well, that's better than the barracks yeah, but you know, we complain if we have to sit in traffic for 20 minutes or waiting in a long line at Starbucks, we complain. Imagine being chained to someone, let alone a, a Roman guard who probably didn't smell that well. 24 hours a day, seven days a week for two years, and yet we don't find a hint of Paul being discouraged. No discouragement by this man. He's not hopeless. He's not resigned to say, I'm going to finish my ministry in silence. I'm going to be a good boy and just sit here. House arrest, chained to a guard, he's still faithfully proclaiming and teaching Jesus Christ. Look at the latter part of verse 31. He does it, we're told, with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, most of the commentators argue, and I agree, that when it says without hindrance, it means that he didn't have a lot of interference from Rome. That Rome, the officials, and these guards were allowing him to proclaim and teach Christ without hindrance without impediment. And, and yet what we see here is that Paul, nearing the end of his ministry, nearing the end of it, he has the same passion. He has the same fortitude, the same drive. I've often heard Christians talk about how passionate they were for Jesus when they first came to a saving grace in Christ, and now they've cooled off. Some say now they've leveled off. They have a much more reasonable approach toward our faith. There is no such thing as a reasonable approach toward Christianity. You know that. It's your whole life. It's all or nothing. If you've reasoned yourself into a mediocre faith, then you are lukewarm and likely will be spit out of our Lord's mouth. Same passion, same drive, end of his ministry. And so the question that I have that I, I hope you have is, how did he do it? 
How did he stay a course, such a hard course, for so long in the midst of so much suffering, and yet he continued to proclaim and teach a crucified Christ? How did he do it boldly? Over and over and over. How is he not afraid that in, in, in this continued messenger mode, he wouldn't give his enemies ammunition to have his life executed before Caesar? What motivated Paul to be so bold in the midst of such suffering? Well, the New Testament gives us several peaks into this. Uh, I'm going to tell you what I think why Luke ended the book the way he did. We know Paul's heart throughout some of his letters. He's very revealing about his own life. He, we know from Philippians, he said he continued so that he might, what? he might know Christ and attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's probably the best. He pursued it because he wanted to know Christ in the depths of his suffering, to know Jesus. He did it out of his love for God, no doubt. He did it in his desire to bring God glory as an obedient son, no doubt. He was motivated to fulfill his ministry, to what? To finish the race, to win the prize, all true. But I think here, I, I believe that Luke ends his book because he's going to offer to us the same motivation that Paul had that will motivate our hearts. You see, Luke's chief interest in Acts was not the messengers charged with carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. It was the gospel. The chief aim, as stated by our Lord in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, was the apostolic proclamation to the ends of the earth, the gospel going out by those who were eyewitnesses. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, and then to the end of the earth. And it was this message, so central to the entire book of Acts, that had captured Paul's heart. This gospel message of salvation by grace through faith in his Savior that had a hold on Paul. And that's why day in and day out, year after year, he could not help but proclaim the kingdom of God and teach about his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because it had captured him. He was a captive man. Paul really believed it. You know that. Paul really believed the gospel. He really believed that by him telling and teaching of Jesus Christ, God would save some. In fact, three years prior, as he sits in a Roman prison, as he sits under arrest in Rome, three years prior, he had written this to the church in Rome. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek and then he said, for it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as is written what? The righteous shall live by faith. He really believed that, my beloved. You say, well, why am I emphasizing that? You say, we believe that too, pastor. We do, but do we really believe it? Do we believe in that power of the proclamation of the gospel to save sinners in our lives? Do we really believe it? Has it captured our heart and mind to the extent that it motivates us day in and day out? We get out of bed to proclaim the gospel. We get out of bed to teach people about Jesus Christ. We live our lives as faithful messengers, not as an add-on or a periphery, but real messengers of a real gospel with real power. Most commentators believe, and I think I agree, that Paul did not die here. If you want to know, well, what do you think happened? He didn't die here. I don't think he did. There's indication that he didn't both in the text, in the Bible, and then early history in the church. There's good indication that, that Paul was released, probably around 62 AD, either coming before Caesar and having Caesar dismiss him, which is likely what happened. It would have been strange for him to get all that way and not see Caesar. Or maybe there was, if they, the accusers didn't show up, he would have been released. So most commentators believe that, that he spent maybe the next two years, maybe the next three years, going back to the churches he planted, strengthening those churches. Some argue he made it to Spain. Spaniards will argue he made it to Spain. They want to believe that. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. What we do know, though, is that um, there was a letter written, the second letter written to Timothy, which indicates that Paul was likely rearrested two years later. Um, and there's good historical evidence to suggest that, that while under arrest in Rome, second time around, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy that Paul was executed under the reign of Nero. 
sometime between 64 and 67 AD. But what's so extraordinary to me that even in this last letter, or one of the last letters, if not the last letter that we have in the Bible that Paul wrote to Timothy, he, he's not concerned about his life. He's not concerned about his freedom or his well-being. All he's focused on is the gospel. Listen to this. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul's writing this to young Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Then he writes this. For which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Oh, that's glorious. He said, I'm not concerned about my chains. I'm not concerned that I'm bound or that I'm suffering. The word of God is not bound, and that's all that matters. You see what motivated Paul? You see why Luke ended Acts the way he did? The suffering, the persecution, the execution of God's messengers for 2,000 years has not been able to stop or destroy or slow down the message of God. It continues to go out. In fact, we have often seen in the history of the church, certainly in the New Testament, we have seen that the more the messengers of the gospel are persecuted, the more the gospel flourishes. The more we proclaim and the more we are persecuted for our proclamation, the more the gospel thrives. The more people hear, the more people repent. From Jesus' crucifixion to Stephen's martyrdom, to Peter and and John's arrest, and then the 12 being arrested in Jerusalem and beaten, Paul's imprisonment, all the efforts to stop the spread of the gospel failed because God is purposed in bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. Because God has purposed to save sinners like you and me. The gospel of salvation by grace through faith in his son has gone and is going to the ends of the earth. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Hallelujah. What a powerful motivation, my friends, to be a faithful messenger. It should be for you as it was Paul. If you truly believe the gospel and you believe that it has the power to save Jew and Gentile, that when you proclaim the gospel and you teach about Jesus Christ, people will hear and if the Spirit is pleased and God has ordained them, they will repent and believe. What great motivation for you to suffer for that message Broken relationships because you proclaim Christ. Maybe financial hardships or job loss because you teach about Jesus. Maybe physical persecution, certainly in other parts of the world, because the message is always on your lips. The gospel message will live on and thrive in the midst of our suffering. In fact, Luke's closing words here when he says, without hindrance, last statement in the book, we know that It certainly meant without hindrance to Roman authority at that time from Paul being able to do what he was called to do. But throughout our study in the book of Acts, Luke has emphasized again and again that nothing can or will hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's been 28 chapters of the gospel going out and thriving And the multitudes being saved, not the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, not the Hellenistic Jews who killed Stephen and caused the others to scatter, certainly not the prejudices in the early church between Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian, not the false teachers, not the false religions, not even the power of Rome was going to stop the gospel from going out from faithful messengers like Paul. Gamaliel, my beloved, was right when he counseled those persecuting the disciples in Acts 5. You remember this. Gamaliel, the Jewish leader, said, if this plan, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God. Luke deliberately chose to end the book of Acts not on the person of Paul, but the message of God the inevitable and unstoppable advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ going to the ends of the earth. And he did that for you to be encouraged. I believe deeply encouraged. Same God, same message, same salvation on your lips. You're the messenger. You're the messenger. 
You have been called and I hope encouraged by Paul's faithfulness to go and do the same with all those in your mission field. The gospel has real power, my beloved. Infinitely more powerful than anything else in your life. That gospel, when faithfully proclaimed and taught to, has the power to redeem sinners. Now you might be nodding your head and saying, yes, yes, amen, pastor. You're very passionate. Gospel-centered lives. Being motivated by the message. Welcoming the lost, proclaiming the kingdom, teaching on Christ. Yes, amen, that's what it's all about. We'll nod our heads and then we'll walk out that door and we'll live like every other 21st century American, will we not? The encouragement is right, but if it falls on your ears and does not lead to action, then it makes us hypocrites of the greatest kind. If you, if we live as every other American lives, not for Christ, not for the gospel, not for the lost in your mission field, but for yourself. You say, what do I mean by that? That means your career, your education, your family, your possessions, your entertainment. That's the MO of your life. Christ is an add-on. The gospel's an add-on. When I have time, I'll proclaim. When the opportunity presents itself, I will teach. But that's not what drives my life. My beloved, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are a messenger. That ought to drive your life. Everything else is periphery. Everything. Your finances, your career, your education, your possessions, it's all periphery, all to be used as a faithful messenger. Second Timothy chapter two. Paul awaiting his execution. He finished his thought. Listen. He said, I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore what? Paul says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they, may, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Do you see what motivated Paul to embrace a life that he knew would lead to suffering and his own execution? It was his belief in the power of the gospel to save all those God had elected to be saved. He dreamt about it. He wrote about it. He dreamed about it. He lived it out as a faithful messenger. He said, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Everything. That's beatings, assassination attempts, courtroom trials, shipwreck, snake bites. He endured everything so that they too, the elect, might obtain the salvation that it is in Christ. So they might what? So they might have eternal life. So they might have eternal life like he does. My beloved, as we end our study in the book of Acts, I... I want to take a moment here for us to examine our lives as professing Christians, as supposed gospel messengers. What comforts, my beloved, have you given up to welcome the lost into your life? What comforts? It's hard. What have you sacrificed to be a welcoming messenger of the gospel? What relational sacrifices have you made? Marriage, children, friends. What relational sacrifices have you made by proclaiming the kingdom of God to all those around you? Have you made any? What hardships have you endured to teach about the Lord Jesus Christ? What suffering have you endured to see the elect of God saved? It's not like we live in a culture that accommodates our faith. It's not. If there's been no sacrifice, no suffering, nor no enduring, there likely has been no proclaiming and no teaching and no welcoming in your life. If there's no suffering, if we move through this life very much like everyone else, then there's been very little welcoming, very little proclamation, and very little teaching, which means what? We're not being faithful messengers. But we must. John the Baptist, one of the great proclaimers and teachers of God's word in the New Testament, he said this to his disciples in John chapter three. He, speaking of Jesus, John said, he, he must increase, but I must decrease. 
My beloved, if you are to be a faithful messenger, then the gospel message in your life must increase and you must decrease. It must rise and you must fall. Believe as Paul did in the power of the gospel to save. Ask God this morning before you leave to give you that same desire and that same passion to open your mouth and proclaim and teach what you know to be true. Make much of the gospel and the lost souls in your life. Make much of it and your life will follow suit. How glorious, my beloved, if your funeral service ended like the book of Acts in a most unconventional way. Usually at funeral services, we talk so much about the person, their marriage, their children, their grandchildren, their career, their success, their portfolios, all these things. How amazing if the minister stood up and instead of talking about your earthly treasures and your earthly successes, all they talked about was the good, glorifying gospel work God did through you. How amazing if your name wasn't even mentioned, but they talked about all the people who heard the gospel proclaimed and were saved through you. Oh, that's how I want my funeral to go. I don't have great hopes it will, but I pray you do. I pray that the preacher would talk about you preaching and teaching a crucified Christ so the saved you know, so the unsaved you know can be saved. If this is how you want your life to end, then ask yourself, what changes do you need to make right now? How do you need to die to yourself today, tomorrow, and this next year to be this type of messenger? What do you need to do to bring people into your life to welcome them? What suffering must you endure to proclaim the kingdom of God? What hardship in order to teach a crucified Christ? 157,000 souls this day will enter into eternity without Christ, many of whom probably most of whom never had a messenger share the gospel with them. I want that to break your heart as it does mine so that we leave here today not being faithless to the message but being faithful to it. Make much of the message and little of yourself and God will be glorified in redeeming many through you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we hear a message like this and I imagine for some it will be heard with a bit of discouragement knowing that this is a very hard place to be a faithful messenger. Father, I ask that you would give us eyes to see as Christ did to look upon the multitudes who are harassed as if without a shepherd. And then you would cause our love for them to swell to such a degree that we would endure and suffer great humiliation, great pain, maybe job loss, maybe loss of marriage in order to bring the gospel to those who have never heard it, in order to preach Christ and proclaim your kingdom to the elect in our midst who have yet to repent and believe. Father, I pray that you would as we end this book, place Paul before us, not as some immortal, but as a man saved by grace like us, so passionate for Christ, so bound by the message in a good way that even to his dying days, he could not stop proclaiming and not stop teaching. Father, do that. Do that in us. Do that in our church. Let us be known as a proclaiming, teaching church. Let us be known as a people who truly believe that the gospel has the power to save sinners. Let us be known for a church that is radically centered upon Christ as faithful messengers of the gospel. Father, I pray that you would, for myself and my brothers and sisters here, that you would take the periphery and truly make it such Put our feet upon that narrow path, Lord. Make us bold messengers. Use our time, our resources, our monies to that end. 
with whatever days you give us, Father, so that when we come before you, we can actually and really hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful messenger. Loosen our tongues, I pray. Stop the silence, Lord. Stop the perverted message. Do a mighty work through us right here in Cambrian Park for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.